Hi there. Welcome to Season 3 of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and I'm the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my coaching services, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. We'd also really love your feedback, which you could provide by going to the BertScholl.com contact page and filling out the form. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at But Seriously The Cancer Podcast and on Twitter at But Seriously TCP. And make sure you check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash But Seriously The Cancer Podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. Today's guest is Christine Bays. Christine is a musician, pianist, and singer-songwriter, a licensed marriage and family therapist, the founder and executive director of the Yellow Umbrella Organization, an HPV awareness organization. She's one of five women featured in the documentary, Someone You Love, the HPV Epidemic. She's a mac and cheese connoisseur and the mother of the cutest papillon ever, Harold, the Prince of Pickering Wharf. I loved speaking with Christine and felt like we were two peas in a pod, which is likely why she and I just dove right into some pretty vulnerable topics. We ended up speaking for like three hours, so I split this episode into two parts, which ended up working quite well, because in the first part, we speak about her first diagnosis, and in the second part, we speak about her second. Christine has been cancer-free for two years. Christine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Bert. You're so welcome. How are you today? I'm pretty great, actually. Today is a good day. Oh, good, good, good. So what were you diagnosed with and how old are you? So I'm a twofer. I'm not sure if you are okay. aware, but so I've got two cancer stories. The first one is I was 31 years old and I was diagnosed with invasive cervical cancer with extensive lymphatic invasion. And what stage was that? Surprisingly, it was still only stage 1B. But because of the extensive lymphatic invasion, it put me in the highest percentage for reoccurrence. So they treated me very aggressively. So when you said extensive lymphatic invasion, that made me think, okay, that sounds like stage three. Right. So it's interesting that it was stage 1B, but with the extensive lymphatic invasion. Can you address that specifically? Do you know what that is? Or is it just what they told you you had and you said, okay? So I I can't say specifically, my understanding of it is that, so I had a radical hysterectomy and then I had five weeks of daily pelvic radiation concurrent with four rounds of chemotherapy. Following that, I had three rounds of internal radiation. And upon the hysterectomy, when they removed everything, that is when they realized that the pathologist at Mass General Hospital in Boston, the team that saved my life, they said they had never seen so much lymphatic invasion on a cervix. And so that is where I started breaking records. Because the other, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess the original breaking record was the fact that I was diagnosed after 13 normal pap smears. So mm. that is also a very intense part of my story. So mm-hmm. Monday through Friday, I'd get zapped. And on Tuesdays, I'd go in for my cocktail of chemo. And then following that, I had three rounds of internal radiation. And that is where they insert something in my already much damaged, uh, you know, so you figure with the hysterectomy, they removed the top third of my vagina, 
my cervix, my uterus, my fallopian tubes, all of the pelvic lymph nodes and mm. uh, pelvic connective tissue. From that, when they realized about the extensive lymphatic invasion, you know, I was 31 and married and, and my husband and I did want to have children. And we were just the couple that was going to, you know, rock our life for a little bit. And then I was going to push out a couple of puppies in my mid thirties, you know, do my thing. <laughs> uh, so we kept my ovaries. That was my choice because my sister-in-law at the time had offered to carry the child for us. if We could, you know, make it in the Petri oh, dish. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so following the hysterectomy, I actually had another surgery, a laparoscopic surgery, and that was to move my ovaries up from my pelvic area because they had determined that I was going to need the radiation, and the radiation would have killed those puppies. <laughs> mm. So when they went in for that surgery, interesting enough, the left ovary had already been too damaged from the hysterectomy, so they just left it there. And the right ovary had it embedded itself into my colon. So they had to carve it out from my colon and then they tacked it up under my right rib cage. <laughs> I call it feng shui. Yeah. We're just gonna clean house. <laughs> We're gonna tuck this up here and you know, boom, 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 light show with the radiation. And was that just how your ovaries existed in your body? Well, your left ovary you say was damaged from the surgery, but your right ovary had embedded itself into the colon. Yeah, during the surgery, everything shifts around. You figure where they're cleaning everything out. So during that process, when the ovary settled, it just settles next to and into, you know, against my colon. And so then that tissue heals. And so that's where they had to slice it away. Oh, my goodness. And, and move it to a different place. Move it up. Up, yes. So because of the, um, I'm, I'm wearing my pajamas like everybody else in COVID. But so the radiation mm. happened, you know, down there. So they moved it closer to my rib cage. Yeah. And when you say three rounds of internal radiation, what is a round? You mean just three treatments? It's three treatments. So picture something about the size of your microphone, a little smaller, but they insert that inside of now my two thirds of a vagina that's already been damaged from the surgery and been radiated on the outside. But now they put that inside and then they shoot uh, 10 minutes of super high dose radiation right at the top of what's, you know, now the dead end of my vagina, because that's where it was most likely to come back. Mm. Yeah. Good times. Yeah. The closest thing I can relate to and it's not that close is that I recently had a exam that I can't remember the name of where they want to look into my bladder my urologist did so they put this catheter up into my penis oh yeah and they ended up doing three catheters in total and there was a lot of profanity being uh, screamed out of my mouth due to the pain because oh. they, they can't numb the first one and then I have a colostomy as well, and they have to put a tube in there so they can somehow, I guess it would go in your anus if you had an anus, and then they measure the pressure in your body when you hold your urine, and then they have you pee, and I'm you know, sitting four feet in the air, completely naked, peeing in front of these people. And I was like, could I, I was making jokes, I'm like, could I be any more vulnerable? The doc was like, yeah, um, how was, how's your relationship with your mother, you know? <laughs> Yeah, dude. Right. For real. That is. <laughs> That's what she said. We started laughing. And so I'm thinking like, 
if I may ask, and it's okay if it's not okay, but it has me think, like, it's something you have to shift in your how did in your mind. Like, how did you how did you step into that? Is that okay that I'm even asking? Oh, oh, absolutely. I'm an open book okay. on this stuff. I I feel like it's very important for people to have these conversations to talk about the real deal of the human experience. And cancer is something that touches everybody, whether it's a loved one you know, or themselves, and you never want to be part of this club. But once you are, you really get it. And you can talk about poop and you can talk about being vulnerable <laughs> and getting completely naked. So, I mean, I was, I was 31. And like I said, and I had been with my husband, I met him in college at Geneseo and uh, we'd been together 10 years. And I was, I have a degree in therapy. I'm an outpatient mental health therapist and minor in piano pedagogy, so piano teacher and a musician in my own right. I write my own songs and Beautiful. sing and play the piano. And that's and my band. So I'd started uh, performing my own stuff around the Boston area and it was going very well. I was just like in like the best place of my life, you know, just oh, everything yeah. was in front of me. And I went in for my pap you know, like I did every year for 13 years because we had to start when we were 18 back in my day. And uh, my mom's a nurse, my grandmother was a nurse, my aunt, everybody. So we've always been very proactive about health. So when I had that abnormal pap, it was like, what? You know, and the doctor originally called and said, uh, you know, hey, you've got this, you know, we want you to come back, you know, for, you know, a colposcopy. And when I arrived, you know, I was sort of like, oh, whatever. You know, I've heard people have had this before. And he looked at me and he was like, I'm so sorry to have you back so soon. And I was like, well, it's, you know, no big deal, right? He's like, well, and he's got me, you know, speaking of the vulnerable position, ladies in the stirrups, you know, that's where it started for me about recognizing just how vulnerable a person could really feel because I'm in that position as he's starting to then explain to me that if these cells that they were identifying as abnormal continue to change, that without further intervention, that could become cervical cancer. And I'm looking at the ceiling, you know, mm -hmm. with my legs spread and he's saying that to me and I'm like, cancer? What the fuck, you know, what the fuck are you talking about, Willis? Like, um, excuse mm -hmm. my language. Um, <laughs> <It's fine. laughs> did, um, did, what was his name? Who was, who was Willis's little brother? Oh, uh, Arnold. Did Arnold say fuck? I don't remember him saying that. I don't think he said fuck. I just <laughs> added that. That's a little base, uh, you know, ad lib. <laughs> I, have a t I have a t shirt that says, I'm what Willis was talking about. That's brilliant. Oh my God. That's great. Talking about, actually. <laughs> what you talking about, Willis? What you talking about, Willis? That's <laughs> uh, so true. And my doctor's name was not Willis, but he was the super guy. And I had seen him forever, you know. And, you know, he explained that, you know, no bays, you know, you've had normal pap smears, you know, and that's what pap does. It's looking for these cells. But, you know, sometimes the pap test can be abnormal. And so we just we want to do this follow up. And what we're seeing here. And so now he's doing the colposcopy and he's putting this iodine on my cervix and he's putting a light on it and it's glowing and he takes three different pieces from my cervix. Hmm. You know, he's like, 
you know, don't worry, you know, we got this because you've had the 13 normal pap smears. He's like, so why don't you come back next week? You know, we set this appointment for like noon or something because I sleep in being a musician and all. And, uh, you know, he's like, you come in, you know, and we'll talk about here's some reading material about a cone biopsy was what uh, he was talking about. There's different procedures that women can do when they have abnormal cells on their cervix pre-cancer. Things such as a leap procedure, which is where they scrape off the top layer of cells. A cone biopsy is one where they go a little deeper, like an ice cream scoop to get all around the cells. There's also cryosurgery where they burn it off. And this is all stuff that generally is done before cancer. So this is, he's presenting this as, this is good news. This is what you're going to get to do. And I'm like, okay, well, it's not cancer. You know, I've got, I've heard it's not cancer. It's not cancer, but we're going to get these gone in some way. Come back Tuesday. We'll talk about it. So that Tuesday, um, at 8.15, the phone rang. And uh, again, my people knew me and nobody calls me before 10, you know. Right. And it was this woman, Paula, you know, and she's like, hey, can I speak with Christine? This is Paula. And I'm like, hey, hey, Paula. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I'm like, yeah, this is Christine. And she's like, oh, well, I'm calling to confirm a three o'clock appointment with Dr. Duska today. And I was like, I don't know. I think you might have the wrong Christine. I don't, I don't know, Dr. Duska. I don't have a three o'clock. And she's like, oh, well, it says here that, you know, your gynecologist, you know, set this up for you. And I'm like, well, that's, I'm eating him today, actually at 1230, you know, or what, you know, to get the results of my colposcopy. And she's like, oh, you, you haven't talked to your doctor yet? Great. Yeah. And I'm now sitting on the edge of my bed, you know, and I'm like, um, no, I haven't. I'm meeting him today, like to get the results of the test. Why? Why did he set? Who is? Why would he set me up with somebody else? Who is Dr. Duska? Where are you calling from? And that's the moment that she said, I'm sorry, Christine, Dr. Duska is a gynecologic oncologist and I'm calling from the North Shore Cancer Center. Oh boy. You know, that's that's that moment nobody wants. And yeah. we all remember those phone calls. We all remember uh, where we were and what we were doing, where we were uh, sitting. I, I I remember the it was a sunny day and the sun was coming in through my bedroom window. I was wearing my purple lavender rainbow unicorn t-shirt you know i i remember just saying okay i'll be there and i hung up the phone and i looked at my husband robert and i said i have cancer and and it's like ball in the corner you know sobbing crying like what the fuck is terrified disbelief like am i you know, at that point, I'm 31, and this is 20 years ago, and in my head, cancer equals death. Right. Uh, you know, and he, my husband got on the phone and called the office, you know, my my guy and uh, my just regular doc, and, you know, he said, come right in, because uh, we were like, we got a very disturbing phone call, and that's when he said, I'm sorry, 
you know, Christine, but you do have invasive cervical cancer and you're going to need to have a hysterectomy immediately. <sighs> and I was like, I'm holding Robert's hand and I'm like, hysterectomy. That's no kids, right? And he said, yeah, I'm sorry. Mm. And whenever I share this story, <clears throat> it's crazy, you know, like you don't even know how much you want something until you're told you can never have that thing. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's like, and I get teary because, you know, I'm, I'm a very fulfilled person and I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful to still be here, you know, and yeah. the loss of fertility, particularly as, you know, later on in life as I ended up divorced and, you know, never was able to recreate a family or adopt in any way. So that, that loss of fertility um, and ability is to me, and I think for many women and people who have cancer and that choice is taken away from them, I think that that is one of the ongoing side effects for the emotional heartbreak and ache that you carry with you, but you 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 find a way to heal, you know what you can, and read, approach how you care for others. You know, I've got many kids in my life in many ways that I love and consider my family. So, but that that was, yeah, it's a tricky one. Yeah, with us human beings, we can have profound gratitude and profound grief at the same time and it's it's not either or it's 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 not either or if it's a first there's this very complex mix of emotions that we don't know how to hold we're sitting there holding it by default but it's just more kind of like laying on us like how do I dump like all of a sudden you're carrying all of this stuff and you're like I don't I don't have the strength for this I don't have the knowledge for this I don't have the the warrior or the tenacity in me for this and but you have to all yeah. of a sudden you have to and you find it and you learn and you grow and you you become strong in ways that you never even Knew you could, or at least for me, I know I had no idea I was a badass. <laughs> it turns yeah. out I'm a badass. <laughs> yeah, managing this conflict of emotions that sometimes seem to just be pushing, you know, one pushes the other out of the way, and it's just this back and forth, this this pushing back and forth, or this tug of war of which is going to be in place for the moment before it gets shoved out of the way with another one. It's it's and I can feel the tightness in my chest the nausea in my stomach. Uh, I was told I was cancer-free the second time. And then I'm like, oh, right. Now I guess I can start grieving the end of my marriage because my marriage ended 10 months prior to being diagnosed a second time. And I just sank into depression. I just was a wreck for months, I think like six months until I finally... Uh, Called my doc. I'm like, little help over here, please. <laughs> hey, uh, turns out I might need a little assistance. Maybe I can't do this all on my own. Yep. And you and don't have to. 
You know, I called my buddy. I'm like, can I call my doc and get medication for stuff like this? You know, I'd spent my whole life believing that if you take medication for depression, you know, you're just not pushing yourself hard enough. You got to look yourself in the mirror and be like, dude, get up. That's what I would do. I'd force myself through anything. And this, it wasn't possible. I'd look at a cow and be jealous, literally be jealous that I couldn't just have that cow's life with no emotional issues. And I went to my doc. I'm like, okay, this isn't good. I'm like, she gave me Prozac. And she's like, it's going to take, you know, X number of days. Like three days later, I was like, oh, my God. Like the volume of negativity went from a 10 to a 2 when I was in heaven. It, it, the serotonin turns oh. out that stuff matters. And, you know, it's interesting that you say that because so as a mental health counselor, so I... I work primarily through my career. I've worked with adolescents and young adults, but I've also, you know, done the gamut. But I, I work and I know, understand a lot about depression and anxiety and trauma, et cetera. However, up until that point in my life, I had not personally experienced major depression. I had not experienced trauma right? like that. I had not, I didn't have this incredible anxiety that was just like, oh my God, you know? And I also sat in my depression for, I believe it was like six or nine months following the end of my treatment for cervical cancer. And, you know, I was hopeless, helpless. I wasn't playing music. I wasn't singing. I wasn't seeing my friends. I wasn't enjoying anything that I used, you know, like just textbook. You know, and me as the therapist, like all of a sudden put it together and was like, oh, guess what? You're in a single episode of major depression and you got yeah. it pretty much, you know, you're up in the moderate zone base. Go get, go, what would you tell your client to do? So I too yep. called my doc and I started seeing my therapist. My medicine was Celexa mm-hmm. and I started acupuncture and Reiki and yoga and I painted my house like all crazy colors, purple and mm. orange on the outside. <laughs> my neighbors weren't too fond of that, but I loved it. I got a puppy and mm. I named my puppy after my antidepressant. Her name was Lexa. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> She's a little Bernese mountain dog puppy, fluff ball mm. of love. She was, and she so... was my baby. So just as I, you know, was taken as my uterus was taken from me. Yeah. Lexa really provided like my first little ball of love and nurturance, you know, in that way. And that really helped me heal. But I'll tell you what didn't come back immediately was the music. I I found myself, you know, re-engaging in life after I did all those things, you know, but I, people would be like, Baze, when are you going to sing? When are you going to play? And uh, every once in a while I would try, but like you said, you looked at that cow and felt envious because it was just nothing yeah I would sit at the piano and I felt nothing and I started playing when I was four I studied classical for 17 years you know and then I started writing my own stuff I mean that's my jam when I didn't feel right in the world I felt right on the piano bench yeah and so for to not even feel anything there that was the the most notable and pervasive ongoing you know aftermath and the magic came back when I watched a movie. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Harold and Maude. Is that the one where Ma 
God is much older than him, and she throws the chain into the river that he gives her. So now I'll always know where I it is. I love that of all of the descriptions of the story that you remember that scene. She He gives her the thing that says, Harold loves Maud. And that he just punched out at like the uh, like a little you know thing that you punch a coin in, <laughs> and he gives it to her, and it's so precious. And she takes it. She's like, and Maud loves Harold, and then throws it into the water moments later. And he's like horrified, like, what the fuck? I just gave you this gift. And she's like, so I'll always know where it is. <laughs> and it's just so beautiful and symbolic. And that so that movie is the thing that brought me back because oh. her. Her vivaciousness, her like exuberance and love of life, every touch, taste, smell, every sensation, like at 79 years old, she's like a wackadoodle. She's like exactly, mm. you know, just that, you know, free spirit of loving life. And Harold is, you know, he's a young man who is just lost and he's, you know, bestowed all these privileges and gifts, you know, but he's got nothing. He's flat and he's just aching to live, aching to feel something. And he's goes to desperate measures to try to get that. And they become friends through going to funerals of people they don't know because it's the circle of life. It's the circle of life. It's the circle of life. And she teaches him how to live and how to smell and how to touch that fuzzy sweater and really enjoy that cup of tea. And at one of, well, towards the end of the movie, Maude makes a choice. I don't want to, you know, give anything up for people who haven't seen it because people should watch this movie, but she makes a choice and it's a place where your, your heart, you know, is pounding in your stomachs and a mm. knot, and you're fighting back the tears. And they play this song, Trouble by Cat Stevens. Mm, trouble, yeah. ah, trouble, move away. I've seen your face, it's too much for me today. And I, I have drunk your wine, and you have made your world mine. So won't you be fair? Won't you be fair? Mm. Like, They play that song from beginning to end, no dialogue. And you just watch the scene take place. And I heard that song and I was like, that is my song. Cause I want like cancer, cancer, go away. I've, I've done your wine. I've done your chemo, your radiation. You've taken my baby making parts. Now I just want to be me. Like I went to my piano with after the movie and I figured out that song and I started playing. And I started crying. You might be able to tell I'm a crier. (laughs) But I literally, because all of a sudden, poof, I felt it. I could feel it again. I found my voice. You know, it's like cancer took a lot of my bits and pieces. But it did not take my voice. It did not take my soul, my passion, my heart. And... Once I found that again, I was off to the races <laughs> and I started like puking out songs about my feelings and experiences in this new view of life that I had. And I feel like I was already a very energetic, enthusiastic, appreciative person in life. Like I'm definitely like I was that prior to cancer, but getting cancer, it's like, 
hyper color. <laughs> like I had red hair before I made it really red after, mm. <laughs> you know, naturally I'm brown, you know, I've got to be admit, you know, but just the way I see things in life and it chose to move forward after that, I feel like I became more of me than I ever could have or would have had I not been through that experience. If that makes sense. Mm. It makes sense to me. I couldn't write songs after my first diagnosis. I wrote one song, and it was about what morphine had done to me. And it made me cold and insensitive to my stepson or my wife when no one else was around. Like this selfish part of me would just creep out. And I was so ashamed of it. And uh, some people saw it, and I think it took some years before they finally really understood that like, I'm like, look, that wasn't me. Sure, that may have been a part of me that was given the stage, but like that morphine, just that stuff just did me wrong. That was dark and dark, dark drug. And it twists what you believe is right. It, 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 it just opens the door where and allows you to go into a direction that you just don't want to go. And that stuff was brutal. And I wrote a song about uh, about how twisted I was. The chord progression is beautiful. <laughs> but is I, it minor key? I'm I'm picturing oh yeah, minor yes. diminished. I'm picturing it's some minor. real like I'm a I'm a knucklehead songwriter. Like I don't know what I'm sure this chord progression has a name. Not the progression, but the combination of chords. I'm sure there's a name that you could give it. Like you're like, oh is it diminished? I'm like, I I'm sure. But it's it's this beautiful progression. One of these days, I'll write another song, put new lyrics over it. But it took me years to before I could return back to the song and play it without just like being overwhelmed with shame because I didn't because I felt responsible for how I behaved. And yes, I'm responsible, but there's a part of myself that is not responsible for this drug that got over on me, you know, and had me just come from a place that is not who I am. I may have my moments of dropping the ball, but this was definitely extended. And then after that, when I was diagnosed a second time. How long in between diagnoses were you? Mm, well, let's say with no evidence of disease, it was almost two and a half years. And same cancer. What was your... I apologize. What was your first case? No, I love it. This is how we get to know each other. I was, yeah. di I was diagnosed the first time with stage two rectal cancer. I was 36, about three weeks shy of being 37. And then after my treatment was over, two and a half years, almost two and a half years later, I was diagnosed again with uh, the same rectal cancer metastasized to the liver this time. God, that's terrifying. Yeah, and then my doc is grinning when he when I when I walk in. He's like, "I got good news for you." I'm like, "It's not cancer." He goes, "Well, it is, but it's the good kind of metastasis." I'm like, "Huh?" I didn't realize there was a good kind. I don't know if I laughed or just looked at him like he had three heads, but I think it may have been a little of both. And he said, "Yeah, it metastasized through the portal veins that run from your large intestine to your liver. It didn't go through your lymph nodes." So. You know, there's a greater likelihood of it being contained. And I was like, okay, great. So, should I throw some confetti or get, yeah, like, bring out the clowns? Um. Right. So, like, you're talking about, you know, this, you know, I can never have children again. I can never have children. 
and I'm grateful that I'm cancer-free and I'm going to live. It's this just such a complex thing to experience. And that said, I was able to write like nobody's business. Like I said, I wrote one song through my entire first diagnosis. This, once my former wife and I had split up, I booked a gig with the band. We got back together. I mean, maybe I, I think I created a new outfit. I don't remember. But I got on stage and started singing. I did not recognize my own voice because something was free. Because when my wife and I were together, she's the one who ended the marriage. But after all was said and done, years went by, and I was like, you know what? Thank you so much, friends in our marriage. Like, I, I didn't want, you know, I was loyal. I can be blindly loyal to the point of like, it's like, dude, like, Look at what you're in. Do you actually want to be here? I said, I'm going to do this. I just made a vow, you know. So I had just, you know, tamped out my fire down to embers once we got married in order to be a father, in order to be a husband. To you know, do the right thing. Do the right thing. And when we split up, and I don't, well, I got diagnosed, and I decided that after the first diagnosis, it's like, I'm going to stop pretending. I'm going to actually be me. I'm ashamed to show the world who I am, and that's over. And this was while I was a musician and all kinds of things, but still I I kept so much hidden. So that was over, and then we split up, and I realized how much I was, again, keeping hidden. All that came out in my singing. So when I got diagnosed a second time, I was just like writing songs about basically that were influenced by cancer, a divorce, and... flings that I was using to like not completely drown and I say using that sounds so cold you know what I mean I'm just trying to I that. totally know what you mean believe me oh <laughs> so I get you when you say like there was no music like where's the music like this is what I do and it, when you know that that's the what runs through your blood that makes you tick and then you don't hear the tick Mm. and you don't feel the thing that was terrifying to like it, it that, like it's like it's such I, and i think that people who are not musicians they they must have us there you know other ways that they have a similar kind of feeling wh which helps them recognize that something is terribly wrong you know like they don't enjoy the the most thing that they know they love the mm -hmm. most etc and music is such an emotional output and it, for me and i think for most musicians you know we go there because we can't express things in that way that we don't necessarily dare to in talking regular day life and to not have that when you're having the most feels possible of extreme kind and then to not even have that as a way to express it or put it when that thing is finally pulled and then you can that's magic i can only imagine how joyous that must have felt for you because i know what it was mm. for me it, it so was like after the first diagnosis about a month or so after i i wrote one email to everyone on my you know personal list and then shortly after began a blog and on this blog i learned how to tell on myself because i'd gone to these trainings years before that had me realize that the, what part of what the training was to realize the less of yourself you hide the more free you become to be yourself you know and it's in sharing the most intimate 
parts of ourselves, including our fears and our shame. It's in sharing that where we connect most so powerfully. So that became really my, actually, I didn't even, I, I, I want to add, huh. like I'm seeing this as a result of my conversation with you right now. I hadn't seen it before that I stopped writing music, but I started writing a blog and it was, and it was, um, it was public, you know, because yeah. I just, and it got a lot of following like on every continent where people have internet, people were following it and that was my writing uh, when when we wow. as musicians and i would imagine you know people who create in any format for so many of us it just comes through it says christine here's a song now boom boom absolutely and, right and that's where the voice memo oh wait it's here now click gotta grab it before it's gone like a puff of smoke right. sometimes like Right. Yeah, Tom Waits does a really good, uh, or, or, or Elizabeth Gilbert talks about Tom Waits' approach to that, which is, if you haven't heard it, <laughs> it's the best ever. He's driving down the, he's driving down the ten, I think, in L.A., and his song pops up, and he's like, he grabs his pen, he's looking for his pen, his paper, finally, he's like, you want to know what? And I'm totally destroying it, but you'll get the idea. He's like, look here, like I'm on the freeway, and it's rush hour, and this is dangerous. I'm not, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. Like, you want to bring this song to me later when I'm safe? Fine, but I'm not doing it. This That's hysterical. <laughs> right like literally the songs that I have written on the Mass Pike or on Route 88 oh going home from Boston to Elmira to see my family or to going to Ithaca to see our mutual friend, Rachel. Like that's, I have a pad of paper thing and Ooh. it's like trying to read my handwriting because I've got my hand on the wheel and I'm left-handed. So then I'm, you know, like writing and scribbling and it's dangerous and it's like, yo, the universe, could you just hold off till I get to the rest area? Right. <laughs> so good for you for putting your hand on the wheel. I put my leg on the wheel. I hold the pad with my left hand and write with my right hand. I'm steering with my leg and I'm like, um, hey Bert, how about we don't kill somebody? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, safety first. Safety third when it comes to writing music, I think. <laughs> right, creativity first, <laughs> safety third. But yeah, when, when that channel of expression is crickets, I mean, we get that we have quiet times when nothing's coming through, and sometimes that itself can be the source of inspiration down the road. But... Clearly for the both of us, like I got diagnosed with cancer. Where's the songs? Like, this Isn't is this when I'm supposed to write my hit? Mm. Aren't I supposed to write a bestseller right now and send it off to, you know, stand up to cancer or the American Cancer Society and be like, this is my gift because now I've got the, and it's like, <laughs> I don't know what the fuck I want to say. I want to say that I'm bitter and sad. I am fucking angry and I oh. am terrified and I feel robbed and like, why did, why me? Like so many people out there don't even want kids and have them and why can't I? And mm. like, how come I've got this scar now over here? And how come my, you know, diarrhea is always there because of radiation and teritis. That's not sexy. Who's going to want to be with that? You know? Thank you. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know, so that's the other part. So you had asked me a question earlier and I just recognized that I did a little Irish telling but about the vulnerability of being, you know, bare ass naked with the private parts wide open with a team of doctors going up in your junk, looking at your stuff, you know, that, that vulnerability, it's 
once you get past it, like once you realize, okay, there's going to be like 30 doctors looking at my, my vagina today, people, you know, uh, it's like, then all of a sudden it's like kind of freeing, you know, then it's like, oh, it's just a body. It's just like looking at my ear. It's just like looking at my hand. And, you know, then you get sort of desensitized in some ways so that you can laugh and be like, oh yeah, I, I sparkled up for you today. I used some glitter down there, you know, <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, um, the, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that other than the, that piece of, you know, that being able to actually talk with people like I remember attending my first cancer group support group. Mm -hmm. That was the other thing that I did once I realized I was depressed, you know, I was like, all right. Um, and I'd never been in a group before, you know, even as a therapist, I don't run groups. And, um, so I was, I was trepidatious. I was, I was not really so like excited about it. <laughs> it took about 10 minutes before I realized I was in the very best place I could be. It was with, it was a young adult cancer group at Mass General. It was a time limited. It was like a eight or 10 week thing, you know, once a week. And there were only six of us, but I can't even begin to express the healing that happened with that group of people. Because I think also, so you were in your thirties so that's young. So young adult is, you know, 18 to 39, anywhere in there, we're considered young and that's not supposed to happen to us. When people think of cancer, they think of old people and they think of babies. They don't think of this middle healthy crew, you know, and that for me was like such that and the fertility piece. And so to have people and they were all different kinds of cancer, but the sharing and the, the truth, the raw that came out in that group and the ability to talk about how my vagina is sore from the radiation treatments. And now I have to use a dilator with hormone cream and hold it in. And I feel like I'm being re-traumatized every time. Mm. And then to, through group, brainstorming and stuff to come up with a way to make it less traumatizing and maybe use a vibrator while you're doing that to see if you can create pleasure for yourself oh, wow. instead of re-traumatizing like and and you know, things that we don't think of if we're not like kind of all sharing like this super well what do you do when you're leaking you know it's like because now I'm, I'm leaking all the time because my muscles were severed and so it's like Oh, do you use the adult diapers or do you bring extra underwear with you? Do you use wipes? Right. Do you just carry a backpack of stuff with you so that when you leak through, you've got to change a, you know, like these practical things that come with these dirty, embarrassing parts of having chronic diarrhea as yep. a result of my radiation enteritis. It's just like part of my deal. And I'm 20 years out and still going strong. And to be able to talk about poop with people is important. <laughs> and how your vagina hurts. And then when, you know, you try to have sex with a damaged vagina. And then what that whole process was like. 
and healing. To, to be able to have like conversation about how people are embarrassed to talk about HPV, cervical cancer, because it's considered, you know, because it's from HPV, you know, it, it's, it's this virus that you got to be a nasty girl to be doing that. You got to be out there. You got to be not taking care of yourself. And with all HPV's cancers, that had been the stigma for so long. And I feel so not only for HPV cancers, but I feel for, you know, for anal cancer, for rectal cancer, for breast cancer. Like these are parts of our bodies that, oh, we're not supposed to. And so then there's this shame or guilt or embarrassment added on to the fact that we're fucking fighting for our lives. Yep. Like all of that. So like back in the day, nobody wanted to talk or I didn't know people that talked like that. So to be part of a young adult cancer group and share the, the emotional as well as the physical and the psychosocial dynamics of like then how friends treat you, how your lover or person treats you, how you treat others, et cetera. It's, these are all important conversations that I think sometimes people feel shame-based about. And that's where I really applaud what you're doing with this podcast and, you know, allowing a dialogue like this to happen and then opening it up for other people to, you know, eavesdrop on the conversation so that they can hear two people talking about their experiences with cancer on a very real level. It's so important. It's, it's not just a commercial. <laughs> it's not. Thank you for the acknowledgement. And it wouldn't happen without people like you who are willing to come out here and do it. It takes something to bring this level of vulnerability and transparency to a conversation. Because as you've shown and as I have myself, you know, it, it can bring us right back. The tears arise. And... Uh, that, by the way, is a beautiful thing. It was years from like age 15 to 22 that I didn't cry. I tamped them down after someone I cared about died. And it took a number of years to get myself to be able to cry. And I'm thrilled now that I cry the drop of a hat. And someone may say, what's wrong? I'm like, oh, nothing. I'm crying. You know, And then I'm like, that sounds so snarky, you know, so I have to find other ways to say it. But it's like, it's... No, nothing is wrong. Like I learned to I'm not just, say it to my kid. My kid would be crying and I'd say, you know, and I, I, I don't think I even once said what's wrong. I would say, hey, you know, what's going on, sweetie? You know, because it's... What are you feeling? I didn't want him to associate wrong with crying. And the reality is, you know, our culture did a fine job of that anyway. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. Good luck. You know, you don't need to, you don't need to harden your kid. You're, uh, the culture will take care of that. <laughs> be as no soft and tender kidding. as you possibly can be because... <laughs> You're up against the tide. But yeah, crying. It's, wonderful. Yeah. It's like, yay, I feel. Yes. That's what it means. It's like, what why are you what's going on? I'm feeling. It might be tears. I'm of feeling something very intense. Yeah, exactly. I'm feeling something really on the inside and it's coming on the outside. It's leaking out because I'm feeling it so deep. Yeah, I fell in love with crying. I love it. You know, if, if oh, you know, if uh, watch a movie, watch a watch a, you know, I don't have television, but like, you know, if I have like uh, 
YouTube and I'm watching a commercial, you know, I'll be crying in three seconds. I'm just like, oh, my oh gosh. I, I click on the animal videos and animal rescue and cats and dogs being cute. And yep, that tears are wonderful. You know, uh, you, you know, the Jimmy V video, the SB. Yeah. I mean, that's that'll be up on my oh. website by the end of the day. I don't know why it's not on there already. Oh. He's he's cracking jokes about his body being riddled with cancer and the fact that he, you know everything it took for him just to be up there. And he tells people like cry every day, cry tears of sadness, cry tears of joy. He goes, don't let a day go by, the tears don't come out of your eyes. And man, oh man, it takes it takes us to either damn near die. So many of us, not everybody, but for me, it took me you know damn near dying to. To learn to, to embrace, love crying. To embrace it all. Yeah. yeah. To not have to, to no longer live inside of a mold. You know? What's it mean to be masculine? Um, finally figured out a few years ago. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do. Let me think about it. Uh, don't know, don't care. Yeah, I cared How for a long time. I cared for a long time. All I know is. I want to, I want to feel like me. I want to be mm -hmm. me. And I don't know exactly what labels or, you know, where it falls on the spectrum of this or that, or the Likert scale of this or that. All I know is like, I'm after not feeling, I think that, and I say this to my clients, so People in pain, people who are going through something, you know, whether it be cancer or depression or abuse or being bullied at school, like it's through our hardest, you know, things that we become the strongest. <laughs> and it like in some ways it sounds so cliche, but it's so like the kids that come to me that are brave enough to step into my well, used to step into my office. <laughs> now we do it on Zoom, you know, but that are willing to be open and come in. A 16-year-old teenage boy that dares to come into my energy and share with me that he's feeling suicidal and has been cutting and mm. struggling with his sexuality and has been traumatized. For him to come to me with that, that is such bravery. And it's like, I would never wish anybody to go through those things ever. But by him come getting to an awareness to come and face it, to open that closet door of the dark, to go into the basement and be like, you're getting out of here, motherfucker. You are not welcome here any longer. Come on, boom. You face that stuff and then you're like, oh, I did it. You know, and that's where I feel like I did come into like my superpower in a way, like when I fully returned after the first cancer, hmm. you know, with cervical. And I think that actually a lot of my voice came from that, uh, the education um, that came with my particular cancer and that stigma and all that stuff I was talking about before with HPV, 
So when my doctor explained to me, because I was like, how did I get cervical cancer? You know, like in the midst of it, you know, and she's like, oh, HPV. And this is back in 2000, April 18th, 2000 was when I was diagnosed. Mm. And, uh, you know, and she said HPV. And I was like, what, HIV? And she said, no, HPV, the human papillomavirus. And I was like, the human, what's that? (laughs) And she's like, oh, it's a sexually transmitted disease. You know, 80% of everybody gets it. For most people, you know, it goes away. But for some people, it stays and then it can become cervical cancer. And I was like, wait. I'm sorry. Both of us did that. Like, wait. (laughs) And my weight was like, you know, again, what you're talking about, Willis, you're saying that a sexually transmitted virus got inside me. And I've been with my husband for 10 Mm. years. What she's saying. And she's like, oh, no, no. Before you go there, she's like, you can let me explain the HPV thing. She's like, you can get HPV. From one person, one time, even without intercourse, even with a condom, it is not about promiscuity or infidelity. It is about how your body handles the HPV virus itself. And so you can get exposed to HPV when you're 20 years old, and it can remain dormant in your system. And then if your immune system drops below a certain place, then boom. So it did not necessarily mean Hmm. that my husband went out and, you know, was getting busy with others. And I firmly, I absolutely, I know that neither of us did. And so I believe that I acquired it when I was in college and it was laying dormant and through my pap smears. So the pap smears are supposed to catch these changing cells. Right. And I always went, always, Good to go. Never had an STD, never had any problems, the occasional urinary tract infection, you know, but nothing. And like I said, monogamous with my husband for 10 years. So 13 pap smears and then boom, cancer. We're like, how did that happen? So the traditional pap smear, so the old school pap where they would take a little swab from your cervix and they would put it on a slab, boom, boom look at it under a microscope, that pap smear, which uh, Dr. the dude who invented it, he mm. did a great job and he works with what he got. But unfortunately, you take a thing of cells and you put it on a slide that's clump. Can't see it all. So it has a 50% up to a 50% false negative rate. How about mm. them apples? So my doctor explained it to me and that where my cancer was, it had to be, um, they estimated about five years. So that meant for five years, I went in for my pap test and my pap test gave me the incorrect answer. My cancer was growing and the pap missed it year after year after year. Oh my goodness. And the year that I went in, in 2000, my gynecologist had switched to the liquid pap at that time it was the the new liquid pap was thin prep and the liquid pap how that differs is they take the cells from your cervix and then they put it in a container a little thing of water liquid and so that way all the cells get all mixed up in there and then they take a dropper and they put it on the thing 
And guess what? It's one thin layer of cells, a, a sampling of all of those cells. So it allows much more specificity and accuracy. So that upped the game and that is what caught my cancer. Wow. And is that standard now, that, that type of test? The old school yes. pap smear is gone? It, it's out of here. There were, for many years, there were like the, the clinics that offered to, you know, lower socioeconomic status people and people without insurance. They were still using those tests for a like, long time. And in fact, they may, I can't speak that they are not ever being used. Mm. I can say that there has been a lot of advocacy work done for specifically this reason, including my own voice, which is part of that superhero that I like found in myself when my doctor explained this to me, I was like, well, how, why doesn't everybody get the liquid pap? And my doctor was like, well, not everybody has good insurance and not every hospital has it. I'm like, well, shouldn't every woman get the best test available period. Right. And, you know, and what about this HPV thing? I'm like, I had never, I'm a well-educated, informed, proactive woman. And I had never heard of HPV. I'm like, you know, what's the deal? You know, and when she explained that, you know, it's, it's a transient virus, you know, most people get it and most people it goes away. But if you have a persistent HPV infection, that can continue to change the cells and lead to cancer. So they had just come out at that point when I started to really fully feel better in 2002. They came out with the HPV test. So that is a test that is done simultaneously with the PAP, with the new liquid PAP. And it is for women 30 and up. And what that does is it tests for presence of the virus. So check that out. So this HPV test can check whether or not you're even carrying the virus even before the PAP looks and sees cells changing. So, right, because the cells change because you've had the virus. So when the HPV test and this liquid pap, it was like mind blowing. I was like, well, wait a second. Shouldn't every woman know whether or not they're carrying the virus? Because if you know, then you absolutely will not blow off your annual pap test. You absolutely will make sure that you follow up and you are doing the things that you need to do. So many women just don't go because they think it's invasive. Oh, I don't want to go to my pap. And it's like, no, honey, you want to know what's invasive? A radical hysterectomy, internal radi mm. uh, radiation, that, that'd be invasive. So with these two things, I was like, I started talking to every person I knew about, hey, are you 30 and up? Because the HPV test is only for, at that time, it was FDA approved for 30 and up. The reasoning for that was everybody has HPV in their 20s, because that's generally when people are start to get intimate with one another. And again, for most people, it comes and goes. So they figure a lot of people get it. And then by their 30s, most people, it's gone away. So you start testing that. And then it'd be like, oh, wait, that's still there. Bays has got it. Bays has got it. Wait, she's got to come in every six months. Or she's definitely got to come back. Or you know what? We're just going to go ahead and do this extra little look, blah, blah, blah. So I decided after like talking to people here and there that I was going to scream it. And in order for me to scream, I needed a microphone and a stage and my band. And so I, I was like, I'm going to hold a benefit concert. And so I hadn't played music in two years, you know, since my thing in public. So I, I was doing quite well. 
prior to, you know, like getting good reviews and stuff and all mm. clubs. And so I, when I got back in it and I was like, Hey, I want to do this concert. People were like, Whoa, where have you been? And I'm like, well, this is where I've been and this is what I want to do. Would you help me out? And they were like, yeah. So I got publicists and you know, the radio people and TV people and newspaper people and fantastic musicians all around the Boston area. And I got the Paradise Rock Club, which is a, this huge rock club classic in Boston that I'd never played at that point. And uh, they let me do it. And these mm. phenomenal musicians that were huge in the area, Katie Curtis, Jim Spigigo, the Mud Hens and my band, the Skills of Ortega, with all the help from all the PR, it was like crazy that everybody was my face and my story. And most importantly, the message of women, don't blow off your pap. Make sure you ask for a liquid pap test. Make sure you get an HPV test if you're 30 and up. Be empowered, be educated. You got this, like was the thing. And I'm like, how am I gonna do this? I'm gonna talk about pap smears and I'm gonna use pop music. So what did I call the, the concert? Drum roll. Pop smear. <laughs> Tis true. Tis true. Oh, I love Pop it. smear at Paradise. And at the end of the day, um, we sold out. It was a 650 uh, capacity. We raised $10,000. And I gave it all to the American Cancer Society, the National Cervical Cancer Coalition, oh. and the Gynecologic Cancer Foundation. Because when I was in it, those were the places that I was going for, for help and support and camaraderie. And from that concert, there was a woman in the audience that worked for the HPV test people. And there was a woman that was driving by that heard about it on the radio that worked for the liquid PAP, the thin prep PAP people. And so... I was approached by these two companies of these tests that save lives. They're like, Baze, you want to do this again? And I was like, well, yeah, because it's not just women in Boston that get cervical cancer. This is, yeah. So I, through unrestricted educational grants, and then I started applying for other sources of funding in that realm. And next thing you know, we did four concerts out in California and two on the East Coast the next year in 2003. And then in 2004, we started to do the national tour. Oh and we, God. so I named it the Yellow Umbrella Tour. Okay, so I'm getting all Irish storyteller on you. I hope this is okay. I love it. So the Yellow Umbrella, so the pop smear. I got, so I made a nonprofit. I filed because I was like, hey, I'm going to be an advocate. I'm going to speak out and raise awareness about HPV and the prevention of cervical cancer and ultimately the prevention of other HPV cancers. So I established a nonprofit. You know, I got my 501c3 and everything. And my board of directors was like, listen, pop smear is cool and catchy and all that. But, you know, we want to appeal to everybody. We don't want someone to be off putting. Let's think of another name. So one of the songs that I wrote after when I got my voice back is this song called Red Roots and Blue Nails, because usually I have my nails painted blue today, mm. but things that make me feel fresh and alive and bright, like I said, that hyper color feeling. But the chorus of the song is, I've got my yellow umbrella, yeah, 
and I'm doing the cosmic dance. I refuse to count time, just make it last. And so it's the Yellow Umbrella song and the Yellow Umbrella comes from this scene in Harold and Maude mm. when coming from a funeral, it's raining and everybody has like dark, you know, raincoats and galoshes and black umbrellas. And there's one yellow umbrella and it's Maude and she's got a little <laughs> bounce in her step. And I saw that and I was like, man, I, I want to be her and who doesn't want a yellow umbrella? Who doesn't want to carry the sun with them? Wherever you go, you got protection, you've got brightness, you've got a weapon if you need it. You know, you like, you, it's just like a beautiful symbol. So I was like, how about the Yellow Umbrella Organization? So my nonprofit is theyellowumbrella.org and the tour um, in 2004, five and six, we did three national tours. The first one was from San Francisco to Boston. We did 21 dates on a rock and roll. Well, the first year oh we God. were ghetto. We weren't ghetto, but we borrowed my uncle's trailer, you know, his uh, thingy. And we totally like my band and I lived, drove country in this RV, like RV. <laughs> the other bands that were, that were playing with us on the tour, because I had to get national acts to help me because nobody knows me who would show up for me nobody so I got I had to approach really big headliners and be like who's willing to jump on under this yellow umbrella and do this tour with me and kudos to Kay's Choice because Kay's Choice is a phenomenal band and uh they they are absolutely almost solely responsible for the success of the yellow umbrella tour they were my headliner the first year and they continued to participate uh the lead singer at the time sarah bettens for the following years always continue to take part of it but first year is 21 dates i'm looking at my wall because my uh, i'm like you can see it there's my wall of yellow umbrella mm. posters so the next year it was uh duncan cheek and i also got ben folds in the fray and then my the third year it was khaki king so the first one was like 21, 22 dates. The next one was like 32 or low 30s. And the last one was 36. No kidding. So and then the last two tours, I did get a bus, like the big rock and roll tour bus. And the clubs that we were playing in were like, you know, the capacity ranged from like 400 to 1,000. And to be playing my own original music that I wrote post-cancer experience with all of these feels that are like, and I go through all, I go through them all in my music. And to have the audience to share the message of, hey, guess what? There's a cancer that we can do something about. Think about that. We There's no other cancer that we know what causes it and we have a way to screen for it so at the time i say screen because at the time we did not have the vaccine yet this was 2004 5 6. so all we had was the liquid pap and the hpv test and i was like ladies and guys who love ladies your mother you came out of one right go tell her make sure she's still going for a pap because mm -hmm. a lot of older women are like oh i don't have sex anymore i don't need to do that it's like yo you do ladies because wow. you could have hpv from when you were 
younger and it's laying there and then it's 80, you're 80 years old and then boom. So that was like to be able to sing my songs and deliver this message and feel like I'm like kicking cancer in the butt while I get to like share my joy of life and appreciation. It was like absolute magic. And and so I was, I guess technically if you, if you look, if you Google like cervical cancer advocates, people or whatever, like I was kind of like, I was the first one. Oh my which is, gosh. cause nobody wanted to, you know, you know, people, you know, still took everybody forever to say the boob cancer, breast cancer, but you know, but you know, nobody was talking about down there because it's down there. And again, it's a sluts disease and you know, all that stuff. And I just had zero problem with that. Cause I know I wasn't a slut, you know, it's like, I got no problem being like, no, this happens. And, and it doesn't matter how many people you suffer. You, you can get it the first time or the thousandth time you've had sex. It doesn't matter. It is about your response. So it was, I don't know. I, I became this symbol for people in a way, which is so weird. Cause it's not like, I didn't set out to do this to be like famous or popular for my hooch. Oh, and that's my other thing is I, I have these buttons that are smiling cervixes that say <laughs> save the hooch. I'll have to grab one and show you before this is done. Yeah. But it looks like a little donut bagel. So the hooch people be like, is it a bagel? Is it a donut? I'm like, no, it's a cervix. <laughs> and that would be my dog on my piano. Hey, Pooch. Barking. Hi, Harold. Oh, baby. Um, but the opportunities that also came from that um, also involved like actually testifying for legislatures and getting involved with different other nonprofit organizations that were also taking on cervical cancer as an issue. So organizations like Women in Government. So women legislators all got together and decided they were gonna have a 10 year plan to eliminate cervical cancer. And they were going state by state, making sure that every woman would have access to the best pap tests, that every woman's insurance would cover the HPV test, et cetera, et cetera. And so I got to uh, be involved in a lot of legislation across this country. And then in, and, and the coalition of labor union women the American Medical Women's Association. I'm just like thinking there's so many groups that were just phenomenal and supporting. And so they would hold events for their members and they would have me come and be their keynote speaker slash performer. Cause I'd always either bring the band or just my keys and me or sometimes my guitar player or whatever. And so you add music to the message, you know, it just makes it a lot easier to educate others when you're entertaining them, sure. you know? So then in 2006, the most amazing thing frankly, in my opinion, to happen in cancer world and prevention was the creation of the HPV vaccine Gardasil. And subsequently after that, the one uh, Cervarex. And both of them absolutely attacked HPV in a, in a way that was like, because HPV still was like this thing that people didn't want to talk about overall, you know, but then with this vaccine, boy, did people start talking. And I was very much a part of the vaccine in the ways that they asked my opinion. They brought me to focus groups. 
when they were creating the various commercials, you know, like they had myself and other cancer survivors come in to say like, no, that's rude, that's inappropriate, or no, that hits home, that feels right. Um, and I can't be more proud to be a part of educating people about the, the safety and efficacy and wonderfulness of Gardasil and now Gardasil 9. And like I said, Cervarex is in there too. And Cervarex is primarily outside of the United States, but I've had opportunity to work with both of those companies also, again, nationally and internationally. So they'll fly, you know, they bring me to Italy, to Ireland to speak to their leaders in their country about cervical cancer and the impact of this person, you know, and this is how feel and perform and encourage them to also do legislation that mirrors what has been effective over here in places where they are still like in Ireland very much. They were so behind on the vaccine because of false information, et cetera. And so that the Ireland, the Irish government would have me come over and partake in, you know, this, you know, press conference and meeting with their leaders. And I got to speak to uh, 5,000 global leaders in HPV in uh, Monaco, <laughs> like a billion years ago, I was their opening speaker to 5,000 scientists and doctors who work specifically in HPV. Like mind alone that they would care enough and want to motivate those brains with this little girl, you know, with just a girl who's just sharing a story, you know, and I share it in a way with my slides, you know, and so that they get to know me as little Chrissy Bays, the piano player, and then going to school and meeting my husband, getting married and almost being a rock star. And then, you know, the cancer hits and then mm. I share the the pain of all of it. And then I share the, guess what we can do? We can do something about this. Yeah. And that is exciting. And that's where I feel like, in that way, I do feel like a superhero a little bit. Yeah. I would say that you are. And <laughs> I applaud you and the applause you hear every time someone listens to this episode. Um, You're going to be making your ears ring. It's a it's a beautiful thing. I so resonate with you as far as you know, when I went through my diagnosis, I was like, like, I felt myself. I'm like, I have superpowers now. Yeah, and wow. I just had to figure out what to do with them. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was a, it was, a, it was a progression of events, and it wasn't as immediate. However, yeah, years just exploded. You created an event after your experience and it just took off people came two people came to you and said will you do this again and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger look at the difference that you are making in the world like my my dreams like came true and my number one dream was to live obviously you know and like i said to play my own original music at these huge clubs in front of thousands of people Mm, all yeah. around the country. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, and I get to kick cancer's ass. Yeah, sign me up. <laughs> on the tour bus. I'll, uh, you'll meet me on the bus, babe. Playing all these venues. Wow. Congratulations. Well done. Thank you. Yeah, I, that's a really big deal. It's, 
I still, I do pinch myself and it's why I have my wall there to, you know, just be like, yeah, this is my life. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not all, and it's not all butterflies and rainbows and yellow umbrellas and papillons, <laughs> you know, the, you know, when you were talking about your divorce and so it was following your first diagnosis, but just after your second before or, 10 months before my bef- second 10 months before your second so my husband's name was robert and like i said we were together 10 years at my point of diagnosis and you know he i think that the toll and i don't know you know for you and and your marriage uh robert was he, i he was fantastic i i absolutely give him kudos because you know, I think that the forgotten people often in the cancer stories are the people that are right next to the ones that they love. And because that's almost worse, I think. I don't know because I haven't had someone that close to me diagnosed, but mm-hmm. to watch the person you love the most have cancer and you just have to sit there and watch them go through that. I'm sorry. That's gotta be a head fuck. Unlike any other, Yep. you know, I just, yep. I, I can't. And, and Robert, he did his best and his best was awesome. Most of the time, you know what I mean? And yet, you know, over time, the, the, difference in how we handled cancer and ultimately my choosing to really make it, you know, now part of my daily life because now I have an organization and now I speak out and now I'm a public figure. And so I'm constantly talking about my vagina and I'm talking about sexual complications as a result. And I'm talking about real things. And he was very supportive you know, in the beginning, very much. And he toured with me and up until the last tour, just prior to our breakup. And the anxiety and the pain that it caused him, I don't know that he actually ever really recovered from. And there were scares that came following that. I've had a few other life-threatening things other than cancer, even before this last cancer. And one of them, they thought cancer metastasized to my lung And so they had to remove part of my lung. Mm. And upon getting that news, you know, I had gotten to a point of like, obviously I was like, but he just, you know, it, it hit him hard and he, he fell apart. And that was like, I needed him to be strong. And he, he was terrified and that was not his fault. You know what I mean? It's like, and this is where the complexity of the feelings that we can have at the same time. It's like, I was so like, I needed him to be there for me. So I was so mad at him and pissed because I want, I needed people to comfort me, but everybody was coming over to comfort him, you know? And I was like, uh, but then at the same time, I'm like, Oh my God, like I was his love. Like I was his love. And so it's so, you know, we've gone through so much in our journey um but the decision to separate was ultimately mine and it really was ultimately 
the best, most freeing thing. And I think the most loving thing that we could have done for each other ultimately, Mm -hmm. you know, because we, we were so good until we weren't and cancer had a lot to do with that. And, you know, specifically, you know, with regard to sex, you know, so I don't know if you go there on this show. There's nowhere I don't go and I don't go two places. (laughs) I don't go politics I don't go social conflict because I want us to stay connected and that doesn't connect people in America right now that divides. So everywhere else we go. Well, to sex it is then. <laughs> <laughs> so we had, you know, we were, we were best friends, you know, and, um, the, our relationship prior to cancer, you know, it just, sex wasn't that important, frankly, to either of us. It was like, I mean, it was there once in a while, but it wasn't what defined us. Then there was cancer and then there was this, I feel like I lost my identity as a woman mm-hmm. in a way. Like I sort of felt like I was a Barbie doll, you know, like I, you know, instant menopause, you know, no babies. And, you know, this two thirds of a fried vagina that I have to use this, you know, dilator with cream so that my vaginal walls don't seal shut Mm. because of the radiation and that whole Mm. use it or lose it thing my guy and aunt was like so you gotta you gotta be having the sex you gotta you know and so I think with all of that I was really desperate to feel good down there I wanted to feel like a woman I wanted to feel wanted Mm -hmm. I wanted to have pleasure instead of this place of pain. And so, you know, I was, you know, approaching and continued to request that we get it on, you know, that Mm -hmm. we'd be like, like, hey, honey, you know, can we try? Can we try? Can we try? And it's terrifying at first. It's just that healing, the physical healing, is you know that takes a very long time and it takes a very gentle person an understanding person to be willing to go there with you and to withstand you know the the easing in of making it comfortable again and the issue was that robert had unfortunately lost all attractive feelings toward me And so we just were never able to get that going again. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it was also the trauma for him, you know, that this was a place of disease. And Mm. um, the, you know, it's like, it's so weird because it's like sex wasn't that important to us, but then it really was for me. Yeah. And, um, that wasn't working. And when he said, I'm not attracted to you and I never will be. Wow. That was, uh, you know, that's another one of those moments. I remember where I was standing and I remember what I was wearing and yeah, you know, it's, I think that was really when I knew that. And it's so crazy. Cause if you would ask anybody that knew us, you know, like when we met and early on, there would be like, 
no way, we're the couple that makes it, we're the superstars. And so to realize that that just definitely was not going to be in the cards. I had people say that to me about my former wife and I when we were married. When we split up, they're like, you guys were like the couple. I was like, what? I look at that now, I'm like, that seems so far from the truth, but that's how a lot of people experience us, how some people experience us. And you're touching on something that is so stepped over, and that is the role of the caregiver. And what you're bringing to this conversation is compassion and vulnerability and grace as you're making space for what it was for him and that it didn't work for him. And I get if a person is pissed that their spouse says they're out and they get just demonized. You're a horrible person if you're a spouse and you can't handle it. Oh, gosh. You are supposed to be there. Oh, yeah. How on earth could you leave your person that had cancer? What kind of jerk must you be, right? Oh, when my former wife ended our marriage, it was a year. Well, let's see. It was, I was NED. There's no evidence of disease by 2009 in the spring. And she ended it like about a year and a half later. And people were just like, what? Like, you can't do that. You don't, there's so little attention given to the trauma a caregiver goes through. I believe in my head was going trauma. The love of my life has cancer and might die. And I'm a selfish bastard if I make this about me. And so I'm going to keep it all bottled up and not deal with it. And, 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 to every one of you listening, if you're the caregiver, like, I'm going to start crying in a second. Like, go to a therapist, go Absolutely. to a coach, go to a psychiatrist, go to a join, support group. Go to a support group for caregivers and recognize, like, you're in a shit position. The worst. And yes, it is horrible that your spouse has cancer and partner has cancer. And I imagine there may be folks listening to this right now are thinking, like, I'm a caregiver and I'm fine. And maybe you are, but maybe, maybe just quiet yourself at some point and just look in notice you know maybe this might be a struggle for you and you get to be miserable about it you get to be upset about it and you know scared and scared and and to be okay with what shame you may you know there's shame that arises I know this, I've heard it said. There's shame that arises when people seek support as a caregiver. They're like, I'm not going through what this person's going through. It's like, uh-uh, uh-uh, let's open some doors for caregivers. Let's open some doors for people who say, what's happening with my wife or my husband, it's not working for me anymore. And you know, we don't have to stop there, but we can just open that up and have that okay to be how you're feeling because feelings are not something we create feelings arise 
And we don't want to feel things. And so many people don't even know how to feel. It's like, how do you feel? And people respond with a description of their thinking. It's like, okay, great. So what you did is you described your thinking. What I asked is how you feel. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh. I, you know, I remember being asked, like, well, hell, I don't know how I feel. I know what I think about my feelings, but like, how do you feel? Like, you get to feel like this sucks. You get to feel ashamed for thinking that. You get to feel whatever you feel. Mm. And your husband, Robert, for whatever reason, got to a place where he's like, I just can't. And I'm not suggesting that when your partner says, I can't, my compassion for him or her as a caregiver does not mean I don't completely support you being furious and heartbroken and feeling betrayed and devastated because that's equally valid. You know, we, we like to demonize the other person. We like to cast blame. We like to, you know, you know, when two people break up, the other one is always the one that's crazy. Oh, they were crazy. Oh, he's oh, crazy. They were, the, they were the jerk. Versus like two people are really in a difficult spot. And that's. Two and that's, people are in pain. Two people are Both, in pain. Two people are in pain. Both. This is like, it was not like Robert's like, yeah, I'm out of here and I'm fine. You know, I mean, it was like devastating for him to lose the feels. For me and it was devastating for me you know i mean and it's it's so it's and obviously i i hope you understand and that the listeners will understand that i'm you know focusing on this you know one area marriage in our sex life but there were several things other parts pieces mm -hmm. that you know led to our disconnection you know and and the physical was one, but the emotional was the hugest. And as we grew apart, you know, opened ourselves up to trying to find ways to figure it out. And I ended, you know, at the end of the day, I really feel that, you know, we went through a period of like, ooh, yeah, where it was like, we weren't super peaceful, you know, where it was like, the, ooh, then there's comes the anger. Uh, and it was interesting because I've definitely like over the years, I, it wasn't long after that I found a place of forgiveness, but I was definitely thinking that he probably was still really angry at me for some of the things that I did do that were absolutely inappropriate and on me and my fault. And that mm -hmm. he, you know, become aware of, and I ended up running into him a few years ago. And this is like 10 years after our divorce and I never see him and we still live in the same area, but it was the most beautiful mm. conversation. I never in a million years would have thought, cause I like, I did think that he was still carrying around some anger. He came in and he hugged me and he told me about how he was so proud of all the stuff that I continued to do with the yellow umbrella and about how the music we created changed his life and he continued to make music in a different way as a result and that he forgives me for the things you know for our mistakes and it was just like 
I felt like, and I'm going to cry, I really felt like a weight lifted, you know, because it was a horrible experience to go through, you know, and he is happy now and he's in a good way. And so am I, you know, and so we needed to separate so that we could find these new places and ways to be in a new form. And that was okay. And oh my gosh, I'm totally quick. (laughs) You know, and it's, you gotta go through the rough to get to the other side, right? You know, I'm so glad that he's better. And I'm so glad that I am better. I'm happy for both of us. What a gift it was to see him. So much. And I went home and called my mom right away. She's oh like, gosh! I'm gonna believe this, because you know she takes my side. So she and I'm like, you can't. We can't be talking nasty anymore. <laughs> Not that we ever talk really nasty, but whenever I was feeling low, you know, she bolstered me. But yeah. that really was a gift that he gave me. Yeah, absolutely. When so our marriage ended, Daniela told me that she was no longer going to be married to me in November of 2010. And holy cow! Did, did you see it. it coming? No. Oh. So loyal. Oh. So fiercely loyal. I'm like oh. a dog who just doesn't know. I can be so blindly loyal. I'm like the dog every every dog owner wants. Wow. And I did not see it coming at all. Did the floor just like Oh my god. Oh. Yep. I Yeah, there's so much there. The floor fell out, and I told her that I requested that we work with a therapist or a coach and that we leave no stone unturned and we get to the bottom of it. And I can see now she couldn't. I felt so betrayed. I'm like, you're betraying me. You're betraying the children. You're betraying our families. And I was not uh, at a loss of words in those angry, hurtful things that I said. And five years later, after I'd been doing years of work and wanting to heal the relationship, because I had a stepson and we had our boy who was four, almost, almost just almost five. No, I think he was four when she let me know. And five years later, I had been on a seven-day silent retreat. I'd been listening. I saw this teacher speak on a little, you know, one-day, Saturday, you know, eight-hour thing. And then I started listening to his YouTube videos. His name's uh, Ajashanti. He comes from a Zen tradition. And then I went, and I understood the purpose of a silent retreat, and that is, you know, if you're silent for that long, you can be silent for a few days at a retreat and keep the big stuff from coming up. But you're silent that long, oh, stuff comes up. And uh, it was so healing and so transformational. I called her a couple of weeks later because we were talking about, you know, if our son should be in a ski club or not. She was talking about wanting to be in a ski club. And after the conversation was over, again, like I was just in such a peaceful space from this retreat. I asked her why she never healed our relationship because she had actually told me on that phone call i'm like so how are you doing anyway oh, i'm doing great i you know, had this conversation with one person and totally cleaned up our relationship and took responsibility and i then i took responsibility with another person i was feeling really 
fulfilled and empowered. And I just gently said, like, how come you never took responsibility for how you ended our marriage? And within a few minutes, we were both crying our eyes out. And she's like, I don't know how, how, I don't know. I, I can't imagine the hell you went through the way I left you. And she asked me what it was like, and I got to tell her and be heard for the first time. Because, I mean, how could she tell, how could she ask me that question? Because when I was going to just unleash hell on her when she asked, there was no space for her to have that conversation with me. And so when she did, she just listened and let her heart break as I told her what it was like. And then after a while, I'm like, what was it like to be you in our little town of Ithaca? to be the woman who left her husband who had cancer. She's like, it was horrible. She's like, people said the most horrible things to me. She goes, someone said to me, you're the most horrible person I've ever met. And I cried so hard when I heard her say that. I said, you know, that's all I ever wanted anyone to tell you. And now that I know someone told you, it's breaking my heart. Like, I don't ever want anyone to say that to you again. And I had to go create for people in my life like I forgave her and my buddy dear friend of mine my shop mate I started blowing glass out of all this Ooh. And, yeah and he he was like way to lay your burden down and that became a song wow oh, lay I want to hear that my one. burden down my head was heavy and my heart was bound till I laid my burden down Oh my gosh. I never, I played that song once because it's just like, it's still finding its place. You know, there's so much behind it. And uh, we're friends now. I love her dearly. I love her like I loved her before we started dating, like when we were just friends. And How I was just. How wonderful for your son. Yeah. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. The day, the day that she and I, after we had that conversation, the first time we saw each other in the hallway of the building I live in, I hugged her. And my son, of course, just his intuition, brought him up onto the banister. And he was at perfect height. And she and I hugged each other. And he started hugging us. It was the first time his mom and dad had hugged each other in years. And all the pain we went through and the gift that it was for him to see that you can forgive and you can love someone again. And he didn't have that modeling available for him until his mom and I went through it. And I didn't have that modeling available for me until I went through it. Like the, the, I didn't know what the word hate really meant until my marriage ended, and I felt hate. Oh, talk about songs. I got a tune where I'm like, uh, you were easy to love, now you're held to hate since you, turned oh. around and, <laughs> since you turned around and walked out that door. So I'm just going to keep on hating you until I don't love you no more. Ooh, that's good. Nice. <sighs> Boy, I bet it felt good at that time to mm. write it and to let it out and just. The shame. The, 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 is it shame? The the. What is the word I'm looking for? The fact that I didn't want to admit that I was still loving her for so long. Um, I didn't. I didn't want. I didn't want to still have those feelings yeah like i felt like you know the fool like to still have those feelings you know and then my buddy's like uh you ever listen to the music you listen to all the time 
<laughs> the people belting it out about how heartbroken they are and how much they love someone. I was like, wow, man, that takes some courage to tell the world that you're <laughs> that you're heartbroken and devastated. Holy Shocker. cow! But what a thing to to say. Like I was like, not me. You didn't get me. Like you know, that's a big part of my ego that I got to deal with is never wanting to to be. Uh, you know, you know, no one took advantage of me. No one got the best of me. It's like. Know, let me say it out loud to the world. Like, yeah, like I was in love with her and my heart broke and I was devastated when she left and I didn't want her to be gone. After the time went by, I realized, well, we were not a match. And I had tamped out my fire, like I said earlier in this podcast. And like my fire would, I tamped it down to an ember in order to do what I felt was right. And now, oh my goodness, I'm living Are the life that I love. Are you ablaze? You oh. seem like you're on fuego. Yeah. You're bright light. You're my, bright burning. I was diagnosed with cancer, and I found the superhero inside myself. And I was like, you know, physically, I might not be that strong. Who I am as far as navigating profoundly painful emotion and struggle, every one of us who gets through this is just like most of us get woken up to like, wow, I'm a powerhouse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like woke. Yeah, and power else doesn't mean you didn't feel. It doesn't mean you weren't on your knees bawling. It means you were there and you you stood back up or you reached out to someone else and said, you got to lift me because I can't even get onto my knees. I, I I need a little help here, all right? I need I might need a big chain. I <laughs> might need a tow truck. I don't know. But, you know, just everybody stand by. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it is... I've never been as present as I am in this conversation with you to the importance of caregivers and family members being recognized for what they go through when their loved one gets diagnosed with cancer and they immediately don't get to have the attention and care that they need. I mean, thank God some people get it, you know, and they're aware that they need it. But man, oh man. I think about the call that I made to my mother to tell her that I had cervical cancer. That was the hardest call that I have ever made in my life. That's just, it's just not right. You know, I mean, it's just not right. And my mom is a lovely, lovely, amazing person. Both of my parents and my brother. I'm very lucky that I've, really wonderful family and my mother was at work and for her you know like I I just I and she did get help she did go to therapy she lives is still in Elmira New York so mm. she came up and she stayed with me for you know like a while after the hysterectomy and then a little bit during my treatments my chemo when I got really sick but she was good. She got on Prozac and therapy. Hmm. And so, but I, I know to this day that that is when her hair went gray, she stopped coloring it. She was always a silver fox, mm. but then she just let it go. And, um, that was, I, I don't, I don't ever want to cause that kind of pain, you know? And it, not our choice, you know, but like, right. I, it's still because of me 
that she felt that, you know, and that Robert, and it's like, fuck. And so then I get cancer again. You gotta be kidding. But that's like later. And that's the next call. But Christine, um, it's a hard one to let go of that when it's my body that didn't get rid of the cells and that the cancer arose in and developed in, and then to feel like that we're responsible for, for that. For all this pain in other people, for your kid to go, daddy has cancer. Yeah, I still have within me that, you know, when I go and get my scans, you know, I had my scan last December and there was discomfort around my liver when the nurse practitioner uh, palpated my abdomen before the doc saw me and I'm like, when there was pain, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, it's back. And I started mapping out all the things that I'm going to do, how I'm going to make it work. And you know, imagine myself being told I'm dying and I'm in hospice and, and feeling guilty and feeling bad. Like I did something like, you know, apologizing to my son in my mind. Like, I'm sorry that, that this happened, like that I got cancer again. And I think like myself, like, Wow, it is. There are so many layers of not. There's so many layers of the onion to peel to not feel responsible for this diagnosis because it's. I'm only recognizing again. There's a second insight I had in this conversation. I think if there haven't been more, noticing that that responsibility. I just had a conversation with a guest a couple of weeks ago about how she was feeling responsible for her diagnosis and not willing to talk to certain people about it as she's writing her book because she doesn't want to bring it up. And it, it arose that she felt somewhat responsible. And in that conversation, I didn't feel responsible for my cancer, but here I am seeing, wow, like with my kid, I do. I'm imagining the apology that I give to him as I'm on hospice. And what they found out is that I just had some muscular issue and it was nothing to do with cancer. But... <laughs> But you go through that in your head. And so for you to think about the trauma that would impact your child as a result of your body misbehaving is devastating. Yeah, and how many people with other health issues that they had nothing to do with? Or maybe they made some choices when they were younger and so it went the way it went. And now all of a sudden, like, shame and guilt and responsibility, like, Man, oh man, I hope anybody listening to this, you know, you're a caregiver listening to this right now and you have issues with your own body. Like, let's all just take a moment and take a breath and just look and be like, am I taking responsibility for this? Am I blaming myself for this? Because we want to maintain fulfilling lives. We want to stay on that trajectory. So... Let's open that door up and have a look around. You, Christine and I were talking before the podcast how I love opening the, uh, the, the hidden doors of my, you know, the closets of my past, you know, that I've nailed shut and moved a wardrobe in front of so I can forget about it forever. And now I'm like, let's dig those things up. So I'm like, come on, y'all. Let's, let's dig it up. Let's open the trap doors. <laughs> Yo, look at what I found over here. And <laughs> be free. <laughs> Oh Dude, you'll goodness. never believe. Check this shit out. <laughs> right? So I really appreciate you also, like, you know, going back and rerouting yourself to the vulnerability of the treatments. Because, like, you know, when I was first diagnosed with rectal cancer, I didn't even know what my rectum was. But I learned real quick when I had a colonoscopy what my rectum was. And the doc that I saw, the first surgeon I saw, 
he put this long, I don't know, foot long tube up my behind. And, I, and I'm laying on a table with him, his nurse, and my wife, and the baby who's four months old. Oh, my. And this tube's going up my backside. And he's like, yeah, I know it hurts, but, you know, because it hurt because of the tumor. And then fast forward, I get my second opinion, and the doc's giving me a sigmoidoscopy, which is, you know, it's, it's the sigmoid colon is not that far up from the anus, so it's a short scope. And he, how do I say this most concisely? He would ask me questions, and I'd answer them. And then he'd ask his students questions, you know, the seven other students in, standing in the room. And then I thought he was asking me the question, so I answer it. But instead, he's asking his students, and they answer. And he, didn't, he steps over the fact that I answered it. You know, he didn't say, oh, Mr. Scholl, I was speaking to my students. I apologize. Not a word. And I just felt so humiliated with the two like you're just a a specimen on the table you're not a human being right there with with a camera up my ass and you can't say like hey um sorry sir i was not speaking with you and yeah hey actually i'm just talking to the students thank you so much for your patience you know how about that yeah how about that and like yeah you have a huge responsibility as a doctor and you want to know what i'm holding you to it bro because you do have a huge responsibility. And his bedside manner was so bad that my wife wrote a scathing letter. And a friend of mine was diagnosed with anal cancer before that. But when she had a recurrence after that, she went and saw this same doctor. And she said he was fantastic. And knowing the hospital that I went to, this cancer hospital, it's highly likely that someone had to sit down with him and like say, uh, what's up with this letter? And there were some references to like, you know, him being in a hurry. One of his students told us that he was in a hurry to go have dinner with his wife because it was a Friday and he wanted to go. And he was kind of trying to hurry us along. So there was some material in there that would be able to provide the folks who spoke to him, you know, some actual factual information. I'd be like, hey, Doc, like, what are you doing? And I think that they spoke to him and I think he listened, which is a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. But when I had radiation and... Uh, rectal cancer, you know, there were like boils on my testicles. There were boils the size of my thumbnail with like four and five whiteheads on each one. Oh, dude, that had to suck so hard. I feel you. Oh, and when they, when the radiation staff, when like four of them, three, four, I don't even remember. It was you know, in my mind now it's 50 of them, but it was like, you know, three or four of them are standing there hunched over staring at my testicles. And I'm like, um, did anyone want to ask if I want some privacy? Uh... No? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, I mean, it, it, how about a shot of Jameson? <laughs> please. And so when I ask you, I feel like my question to you was really just an acknowledgement of how difficult these tests, these exams, these treatments are when you have a cancer, as you said, is about, you know, I had to tell people I had rectal cancer. I was like, no, 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 no. I don't want to talk about to my say rectum. The word rectum. Thank right. you. You're like, I don't want to talk about my butthole. Thank like, you. And now I have a colostomy. And every time you think or find out I have a colostomy or see it, if I'm out in the world, like, oh, poop is now in the conversation. Oh, yeah. Yep. There it is. There's my little poop bag. Boom, yep. boom. Got one for my dog and one for me. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. Yeah. This is, it's such a vulnerable, such a vulnerable experience. And by the way, the second best thing about Prozac 
is I could drink coffee all day. Because I can only drink like one cup of coffee a day, and like after the second cup, it's like it makes me shaky, and I can't drink coffee until right before lunch. I got at least have one meal in my body, but gotcha. when I was on Prozac, I could drink coffee all day long, and I was like, okay, I love this drug. <laughs> my mother, uh, to this day, she's like, pry Prozac out of my cold, dead hands. <laughs> I will never be without it. Like it's it really has made huge quality of life. For her. And that's the beauty of when you find the things that work for you, mm. when you really attack your mental health and say, I don't like the way this is feeling. I'm going to use talk therapy. I'm going to use, you know, CBT or DBT skills. And yeah. I'm going to go to yoga and I'm going to go to a support group and I'm going right. to get on Selexa because you know what? Serotonin is still not doing its job. So I need an SSRI to help it or whatever. You Beautiful. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, I'm, I, yeah, it was, uh, I think I did a few months. Yeah, then I met a girl, and I'm like, I'm not going to take this anymore. I think I'm good now. Um, it, it was, for me, the huge victory was being willing to take it. Absolutely. You know, cause it, was, it, was, I, it meant that, you know, so many things that arose in the diagnosis in the second opinions in the treatments in the post-cancer care in the emotional mental recovery like there's so many times where letting go of how I believed life should be and actually being with what so occurred so many times so many times letting go and accepting what is so yeah, I had it that life is like this. I had, I believed that, you know, cancer would be like this, or that the pain would be like this, or the chemo radiation, which was insanely difficult, wouldn't be this hard. And today, I'm giving up that belief, and I'm being with what's so. And sometimes with tears streaming down my cheeks, because it's freaking hard. You can't put your head in the sand, you know. Resistance is where suffering comes from. So I'm really curious about, you say you had a second diagnosis. <laughs> and a recurrence. Uh, not a recurrence, so a brand new cancer. Thank you so much for tuning in. I truly hope this podcast was of value to you. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. If you'd like to support But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, please go to our Patreon page at Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as The Saint Kid. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The host and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.